Every time I'm in Nigeria or Ghana or wherever and I'm in my friend's kitchen and we're cooking, I cannot leave a tomato or a piece of fruit out for two days or even 18 hours on a kitchen table without it rotting. Because it's natural, it's organic, in that heat, it's gonna rot. Can I tell you that I have tomatoes that I've bought for two weeks that I forgot to use that still look the same here in the States? You go to the grocery store, all the apples are perfect, same size, shiny. The bananas, everything looks perfect. But when you eat them, it's like, where's the flavor? Where's the taste? We've traded perfection for value, for nutrition, for what is really good for us. And you can also see the same thing spilling into the personal care side of things. Welcome to a new season of Start Right Here, where I talk to BIPOC beauty pros about breaking into beauty, standing out, and defining success for themselves. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I'm OG beauty director turned consultant, but I'm also a dot connector who links others with people, ideas, and information. And I do this show because I am an advocate for creating an equitable, inclusive beauty industry. And this show is one way to bring you the information if you want to take a seat at the table or build one of your own. Let's get started with the show. When you're looking at your career, folks, today's guest is going to share with us that it should be finding a career that allows you to live into your purpose. And I am so pleased to welcome Funleo Alibi, who is the CEO and co-founder of Shea Radiance, an amazing skincare line. We're going to hear about her story and how she came to develop a purpose-driven career. Welcome, Funleo, aka Fumi. Corinne, it's a joy to be here on this podcast with you. Thank you for having me. One of the things that has been great for me in my relationship with Fumi is that she has been supportive of many of the things that I've done. She was one of the guest speakers when I did Beauty Biz Camp in Baltimore, and I think that was 2015. So our relationship goes back a ways, and it has always been a mutually supportive thing. So I'm really pleased to have her here. I've been wanting to have her on the show for some time. It's good to be here. Let's start with your background. Where did you grow up and how did that impact your ideas about beauty? Sure. I was born in the UK in a town called Manchester because my parents were going to school there trying to get their certificates and degrees. This was way back in the 60s, if I may age myself. And so my sister and I were born there. And then once my father got his accountancy degree. He became a certified chartered accountant. They bundled us all up, put us on a boat, literally. My mother keeps telling me that it was the last passenger ship that left the ports in the UK to arrive in Lagos, because back then people didn't travel much by air. (laughs) It was by boat. (laughs) Oh my God, I feel so old already. (laughs) But we were the last passengers of the Princess Ariel ship And my parents could not get out of the UK fast enough to get us back to Nigeria. So I was born in the UK and then raised in Lagos, Nigeria. And so how did that affect my ideas about beauty? 
I would say in many ways that obviously I wasn't conscious of as a child, but as I grew up and left my surroundings in Lagos, in Nigeria and Africa, I just realized that that beauty aesthetic remained with me. And I just remember growing up, the women that I thought were most beautiful had beautiful, shiny, glowy skin of different complexions. But the women who were most celebrated and were treated like king mothers and queens were darker, glowy beauties with full heads of hair that were braided down and had beautiful smiles and a little bit of gap between their teeth. And I know that the beauty aesthetic that I grew up with affected me because when I came to this country and realized that people were closing their mid-tooth gaps, I kept wondering, why are they doing this? This is a sign of beauty. (laughs) So just knowing that there was already an established standard of beauty that I grew up with kept me grounded when I moved over to the United States because I noticed that there was a conflict and people were trying to conform to a different standard. But the standard I grew up with back in the day was just that beautiful, almond-shaped, eyed, sparkly smiles, gap-toothed, glowy woman. I love this idea that it was embedded because it was all around you when you were young so that it couldn't really easily be taken away from you. Even though you changed environments, you understood what beauty was inherently, culturally and internally. It was like, okay, it doesn't matter what I'm seeing on television or what you guys are saying. I know what's beautiful. I already know. Absolutely. I love that. So when did you come to the United States? I came to the United States when I was 17 to attend college. And I did a year at a small community college called Bowie. And then I moved to Howard University in Washington, D.C. What was the HBCU experience like for you, having come from Lagos? Coming from Nigeria, I didn't have a full appreciation for the HBCU experience because I didn't know anything else. So I was coming from a majority (laughs) Black culture into Howard. And honestly, Howard was extremely diverse compared to where I grew up. It was diverse because even though everybody was Black, or I would say 90% of the people were Black, we did have some South Asians and East Asians there. They were from all parts of the world. So I got to see another diversity of looks and beauty. We had people from Brazil. We had people from Colombia, people from the islands, people from New York, Alabama, everywhere. So I went into Howard just kind of wowed at the diversity of Black people from all over the world. So it was also a very global and international experience for me. That's a beautiful thing. So you started your career in software development. Was that your chosen career, was it something you wanted to do or did you fall into it? (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely fell into it. Corinne, let me tell you, I am the least technical person you would meet. Well, I first of all started in accounting because of course my father was an accountant and I was like, okay, if daddy did it, maybe I can do it. By the time I rolled into my sophomore year and they started doing the mid-level accounting courses, I was like, this is not me. Let me find something that is aligned to who I am. So I switched majors and studied international business, 
with the intent and hope that I would work for a global organization. But that never happened. I also went and got a master's degree in management, but I never really got to work in the international sphere. And so as a good immigrant, it was like, okay, where can I make my money so I can start sending something home, show my parents that I'm not just a hole for them to be dumping money in. So I was doing some underwriting work for an insurance company. And this was right before Y2K. And this company wanted to train some fairly progressive or open people within the company on how to do updates to the mainframe system. And so there was this call, you know, it's Y2K, everything is going to fall apart. We really need to find people that we can train to make changes. Remember back in the day where we thought the world was going to come to an end and all the dates didn't have the last four characters because I don't know when they were programming computers, they never thought that there'll be a 2000. Yes. So there was an opportunity for that. And I remember when that opportunity came, I was really nervous about applying for it because I never saw myself as a technical person, as someone who could program. I've always really been good at the arts. I'm a great writer, you know, when it comes to history, literature. I'm a liberal arts, creative type person. But my husband encouraged me to apply. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to go out of my comfort zone and do this. So I applied and I was surprisingly accepted into the program. And that's how I was trained internally to write code for mainframe computers. And taking that chance (laughs) actually opened a whole lot of doors for me to kind of change companies and really be able to kind of pursue income that typically would not have been available if I had stayed where I was. So another theme besides this passion-driven career thing is that you took chances, taking chances. You went from Bowie to Howard, then you left accounting and went into international business. And we're going to put a pin in the fact that she studied international business. And at the top of the show, she said she didn't get to use her degree, but she does get to use this degree. That's what's interesting about how our paths kind of coalesce, like things that we're introduced to early in our lives somehow have a purpose later. We're going to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that when we get a little further. So you're able to build a career on this unexpected path. Yes. So would you say then that the shift to beauty was a destination or a detour? I would say both. Okay. Tell me more about that. So also back in the early 2000s, my husband and I were becoming very interested in the business potential on the African continent. A lot of people were saying Africa doesn't have this and Africa doesn't have that. But every time we did our research or we traveled home, we're like, but there's so much abundance here. How can we become part of the solution, creating access to market? Africa is so blessed, it's so rich, but something is kind of wrong somewhere. (laughs) And is there a business opportunity here? Also, all this while I was doing my software development, working for a company in Washington, D.C. And then during this time, I was a young mom and my older son had really dry skin and we were still trying to figure out what to do about his skin. He had some kidney issues that really affected his skin. He always looked dehydrated. So everything we put on him, he just became dusty. So I was still on this journey to kind of figure out how to fix his skin. And also in those early 2000s, 
stores like L'Occitane and the body shop were big in the malls. And I would go out to the mall and I would go to L'Occitane. And even though it was a French company, they were using shea butter. And I was like, wow, shea butter. This is part of my childhood. My grandmother used to mix shea butter with camphor. Don't laugh. And please, I'm not saying you should try this at home. <laughs> if you had like a congestion or a cold, she would rub that thing on your chest because it was a decongestant. I thought about the myriad of ways that we use shea butter on the continent. I would also go to the body shop. And I think at that time, Anita, who was the founder of body shop, was really leaning into ingredient sources. So back then you could walk into a body shop store and you would see pictures of the rainforest. You would see pods of cacao. You would see mumuru butter, all these exotic butters. And obviously shea butter was there. And every time I would be in these environments, I'd be like, wow, this is great. But these are our stories that someone else is telling. And of course, I would buy the products. And at that time, those products were definitely of better quality than what you could get from mass retailers. And I loved the packaging. I loved the texture. But I still found out that when I used it on my skin and my kids' skin, they were still dry. So I liked everything about what they were producing, but it still wasn't delivering. So my detour into beauty was really out of a need to solve my family's dry skin problem. And also that awakening that a lot of the rich abundance from Africa, the stories were being told by people who were not African. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but I felt that there needed to be more of a diversity on how we see the product, how we source the product, how the impact on the lives of the people we're sourcing with, the stories needed to be told with dignity and not just, oh, we're helping these poor Africans <laughs> get something and without us, it would be in shambles. So that was my detour into beauty. It was a detour, but it was also a destination because the seeds were already planted in there. Right. And the fact that you and your husband were already looking. So there was a spark that kind of was lit because you saw this. You're like, okay, this is a different way to do this. So there came a time when you decided to start trying to make your own solution. Were you doing this in your kitchen? Of course. <laughs> I mean, as African people, as Black people, the kitchen is where all the magic happens. And this is not just true for Africans. I found it to be true for most Black people as a whole. When you used to get your hair straightened or when they put the hot comb in it, I venture to say all that stuff happened in the kitchen because that's where the stove was. <laughs> <laughs> and so when it came to making products, it was definitely in the kitchen. And because it was all natural, we weren't concerned that we were going to poison the family. So the kitchen obviously was a great place to start melting and mixing and combining and doing all the magic. So we started in the kitchen. We started with a five pound block that we asked my mom to bring from Nigeria of the raw shea butter. And let me tell you, this shea butter was not even the best quality. I think it had a couple of bugs in it. There was debris. You know, I think she got it from the side of the road. Can I tell you that this butter did more for our skin than some of the most expensive creams that we had bought. And that is the magic 
of using really natural products that even in their worst state, they are better than any kind of nicely packed, shiny, synthetic thing you could put on your skin and hair. Ooh, that's a word right there. That is a powerful word. So as you're coming up with the formula, how many batches did you try to, you and your husband said, this is the one? Oh, gosh. We went through many iterations. And really, it wasn't because any iteration was bad. Like I said, if you're starting with really great ingredients, it's almost like making a salad. If your tomatoes are delicious and sweet and your greens are great and the carrots and everything, if they taste good in and of themselves, regardless of how you toss it, you're still going to get a nice tasting salad. So it was literally impossible to mess up our basic formula when we started adding more oils and everything. But what led to the additional iterations was testing it out with our customers. So the first iterations were this is a basic butter. We're going to add some essential oils. We would read up on different oils, put it in it, and use it on our skin. And we already saw the transformation. And friends and family would stop by the house and get a scoop and talk about how well it worked for their kids. And then the next step was to find out if people would actually pay us for these amazing formulas. So on the weekends, we would set up a table at the farmer's market and people would try the formulas that we had. And that was where the iterations came in. And this is what we found. We found that different demographics responded differently to the products. So when a person of color would come and try the raw butter or the whipped butter, here's what I would notice. They would put it on and they're like, oh my God, look at the glow. Oh my God, my skin is shining. <gasps> I love this. How many scents do you have? When a person who wasn't black and was just used to using very light lotions would stop by our booth, that same product, they're like, oh my God, this is so oily. When is it going to sink in? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's like, um, give me a paper towel. I need to blot it off. And it was just observing the different interactions, the diversity of customers we're having when they would come to our table at the farmer's market, that kind of drove the different iterations of products that we made. So we decided that we would stay true to the solution that worked for our family because we like to glow. Absolutely. So we're like, we're not going to change the glow factor. The glow factor was going to stay. But we also developed skills of creating emulsions, more water-based but richer-based shea butter products that had that sinking effect, but still left a glow. So I would say that our iterations were based on customer feedback and then really centering the need of our key customer, which was that Black woman who is like me who is frustrated by the lack of options in the market and was looking for something that was rich and luxurious and nourishing that would make her skin glow. And that she could know that if she lotioned up her boys or girls and they looked really good when they left the house to get on the school bus, that when they came back home, they wouldn't be dusty and ashy. Let's talk about the idea of what ashy represents in culture. Well, 
I know I don't need to explain it to many of us, but when you look ashy, people will ask, whose child are you? Did your mom or your dad not see you before you left the house? And if it's another person asking you, this auntie will reach into her purse and see if she can find Vaseline, anything to kind of rub you down so you look like someone has at least laid hands on you and groomed you. <laughs> so ash is something that we take very seriously. And when you're living in this culture, because it's drier, because it's not as humid and as warm as where we grew up, the ash factor is times two. And so during the winter months, the fall months, we're all kind of arming ourselves with moisturizers to make sure our kids don't look ashy. Right. And that's interesting that you grew up in Nigeria, so it's a little bit more humid. But the skin is glowing also in part because there's humidity in there and there's a little bit of perspiration. Like we're glowing because we're moving. We're glowing because we're in the sun. We're glowing for many reasons there. Here, lack of sun, you know, that vitamin deficiency, all the things that are kind of adding up for the ash factor to be more acute. Exactly. The acute ash factor. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> so for lack of a better word, the farmer's market was like your testing ground. Yes. So when you settled on product, when did you decide that you wanted to go all in on this? I always knew that I wanted to go all in. I just didn't exactly know what that would look like. And from the very beginning, I was already thinking in terms of a brand. What would this brand stand for? What is the impact we want to have? We're solving our own problems. How are we going to make sure that more people had access to what we had. And so I was always kind of studying the market, seeing what opportunities were out there. And starting in a very grassrootsy way at a local farmer's market, it was in a fairly affluent place. Um, in the winter times when we could no longer do the market, customers would be asking about us. And we've got quite a following at the farmer's market. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's interesting about that is, and I can speak about this as a customer, once you get the glow, you don't want to go back to that dry feeling. Yes. I mean, like the last day of the market, you would have people come in and buy half a dozen jars of cream and whipped butter. I actually remember one of my most loyal customers was a Russian woman, very fair skin, red hair. She would always catch me close to the end of the market every weekend because she knew she could get a discount. You know, when you're packing up and everything, she would buy half a dozen. <laughs> She's like, this butter just does wonders for my skin. And she was buying the thick, rich, oilier butter. So even among people who are not black, many of them are looking for rich products because they're finding that as they're getting older and the skin is getting drier, they can't keep using the light lotions. And so the farmer's market customers started asking how they could reach us when the market was closed. So I started approaching some local natural food stores in the DC area. We were able to get some shelf placement. And then I set my eyes on Whole Foods because I knew that in terms of naturals, that was the gold standard. And so that became my target. Once that became your target, when did you decide to name the company Shea Radiance? When did you two decide that? That was really from the very beginning when we saw just how the ingredient worked with the skin. So we registered it as Shea Radiance all the way back in 2008. We had that idea that 
not only is it shea, but radiance. And at that time, I had already started traveling to different parts of West Africa, meeting women in the co-ops, being in their space, waking up in the morning because of the topography of where Shea grows throughout West Africa. You can actually see the sunrise and there's like the radiance of the sun that you see coming up over the Shea trees in the parklands. And so I had this image of the sun and Shea. As a matter of fact, that kind of impacts our logo is that radiant sun shining down on the Shea parklands where the women wake up at five in the morning and they go as a group into the parklands from their communities to handpick all the Shea fruit that fall to the ground between the months of May and August. And they do this every morning, gather the fruits, come back home in time to make breakfast or do whatever they need to do, and then go to the farm with their husbands. And when I think about Shea Radiance, I think about the impact it has on the lives of the women who gather the fruit. Because in West Africa, Shea butter is called women's gold. It's called women's gold because everybody within the community knows that that woman who wakes up early to go gather the fruit and then process the nuts, dry the kernel, and process the butter any money she makes from that activity belongs solely to her. It's not her husband's money. It's not anyone else's money but hers. And what we find is that when women make their own money, not only is it empowering and strengthening, we know that ultimately she invests it back into the family. So that's that money she's putting in her brow, wherever it is she's putting that money. And the kid comes, you know, like, I need books or... I need new shoes or something is going on. She has confidence that she has her little stash from processing shea butter to be able to help that child get the books and get whatever they need. So shea butter is like a strengthening product that women have. And so shea radiance is all those things. It's the sunshine, it's the trees, it's the women, it's the joy, it's the gold, it's the ability to find that supplemental income that women need. So you went to several countries to just observe and to watch women in the Shea process. Yes. Which countries did you visit? So the first country we visited, we connected with a technical advisor from the USAID. This was back in the day when I was doing a lot of research. So for many Africans, even Africans who grew up on the continent, if you grew up in the city, you probably have no idea where Shea comes from because it's sold in the local markets. But when we decided that we were going to be sourcing this ingredient directly, we went outside of our city of Lagos and went north where there was an abundance of shea trees because shea only grows in certain areas. Typography-wise, right? Exactly. So it's the Sahel region between the desert and the rainforest. And Nigeria has a vast shea belt. And so we had the opportunity to travel up to Niger State to visit some of the communities where women did all the gathering and processing of shea butter. And that was one of the first places we did a partnership with a nonprofit organization that helped the women build co-ops. And then we went in there and were able to buy everything that they produced. We've also worked in northern Ghana. We had another woman entrepreneur, Eugenia Akwete, who has 
a processing factory in northern Ghana that she started to help widows. And we've worked with her. We've sourced from her co-op there. And then we're currently sourcing from Benin, in northern Benin, which has another strong women's co-op there. So our model has changed over the years. Back in the day, I spent a lot of time working directly with the co-ops, being engaged in everything from providing them boxes to chasing the trucks all the way to the port. And then we realized that that's not sustainable. You still got to build a brand here and you got to figure out how to sell stuff. So (laughs) we started working with other partners, women who were like me, who were already on the continent working with the co-ops and then partnering with them so we didn't have to be all the way down deep in the supply chain. So is that where the Global J Alliance came to be? Yes, yes. We were, Eugenia, myself, Francesca, and a couple of other African women, both in the diaspora and on the continent, were some of the founding members of the Global Share Alliance. And the reason we pushed for that alliance is that we wanted to see that the women farmers had access to market, both for their nuts and for their butters. So in the early days, we were very active advocates. The Global Share Alliance has grown. It's drawn in multinational corporations right now who are doing their thing within the organization. But the initial ethos and the initial objective of the alliance was really to kind of flip the pyramid so that the women were empowered and people did what was right by them. For everyone listening and watching, Funleo took me to a meeting in New York. There was a meeting pre-COVID and I was so excited. We were planning. I was going to follow her on a trip and I may do that sometime in the future, but then COVID hit and everything changed. But it was really interesting to me to see the impact of the Global Shea Alliance. As she mentioned that there are multinational companies involved and it's an organization with many legs in many countries on the continent now. Absolutely, yes. There are country representatives who are part of the alliance and then there's an overall board that facilitates all the technical and legal things, which are not, of course, in my wheelhouse, but yeah, it's running and it's doing its thing. Let's talk a little bit about the perception of Shea in the past decades. And though people like Anita Roddick and Lassitam were using it, there wasn't a positive perception of this beautiful ingredient. I know that a lot of the companies that maybe brought Shea to the mainstream were using a refined Shea butter. So they were purchasing Shea from the co-ops and then they were probably sending it to a third party to strip it of the scent and the color so that it was something more similar to the synthetic emollients that they use. Shea butter is quirky because it's natural. If you get it from Benin or Nigeria or Ghana, the colors can be a little bit different. The textures, depending on how much olein or stearine it has, can be a little different. And so in Western cultures, people like things to be standard. And so refining the shea butter gives a lot of large companies that standard, no smell, no color, so they can use it in their formulations. But over the years, there's been that grassroots movement of companies like ours, Shea Radiance, and many other indie brands that said, you know what? The handcrafted shea butter is really the butter that delivers 
the results. That's the butter that helps with inflammation. So when your kids have eczema, you use shea butter on it, that eczema inflammation goes down, it's less itchy. It's the unrefined shea butter with all its quirkiness that helps create collagen stimulation. And that's why these women, they're looking so good and glowy, even though their lives are hard. It's the shea butter that over time repairs the free radical damage that is happening to the skin. And then it also strengthens your outer layer, it makes it stronger over time, more resilient. And so these grassroots companies were able to start telling the story and make it acceptable that sometimes the things that are good for you don't have to be perfect. And I'm not anti-Western, I'm so pro-Western, but I also know some of the things that are problematic about living in a Western environment is this aspiration for perfection. Wonder Bread is perfectly sliced, it's perfectly white, it'll never go bad. But the truth is that it's really not that good for you. A whole wheat bread that is made with all the great things that are good for you is bumpy, lumpy, and imperfect, but it's more nourishing. Same thing with a lot of refined things that we eat in this society. They look good, they smell good, they are perfect, but they are not really delivering what you need. And so basically we feel like we've been part of that movement, changing the perception of unrefined shea butter. Did it have a little speck of dirt in it? Yes, maybe it did. I don't know who you bought it from, you know, but it's not going to kill you. And the benefits of what the butter is going to do for your skin is better than whatever that petroleum-based emollient you're using. So teaching people the way things are naturally is not a manifestation of perfection. The way things are naturally is that it might not always be perfectly the same all the time. We shoot for consistency, but at the end of the day, the product is going to work. It's going to make you look good and it's going to have the nutty shea butter scent, which is fresh. It shouldn't be rancid and it's going to have a little bit of color to it. And that's okay because it works. Yeah, I totally agree. And the analogy about Wonder Bread is very, very true and very, very scary. Like, I don't know that news report that somebody found an old McDonald's hamburger. That was <laughs> like things that make you go, hmm, I don't know. I even want to go back a little bit. Every time I'm in Nigeria or Ghana or wherever, and I'm in my friend's kitchen and we're cooking, I cannot leave a tomato or a piece of fruit out for two days or even 18 hours on a kitchen table without it rotting. Because it's natural, it's organic. In that heat, it's going to rot. Can I tell you that I have tomatoes that I've bought for two weeks that I forgot to use that still look the same here in the States? You go to the grocery store, all the apples are perfect, same size, shiny. The bananas, everything looks perfect. But when you eat them, it's like, where is the flavor? Where is the taste? We've traded perfection for value, for nutrition, for what is really good for us. And you can also see the same thing spilling into the personal care side of things, for sure. That's very, very powerful. And it goes with the whole European standard of beauty, where it's kind of like there is a perfection and a look that equals perfection, which does not equal us. 
you know, (laughs) for the most part, that we don't even equate to. So we've already learned over the years to start to define beauty for ourselves, but define beauty also means not looking for perfection. That's really so deep. Let's talk about the journey now. You said Whole Foods was on like basically your vision board, your bucket list, whatever you want to say. Let's talk about your journey to getting into Whole Foods because you made it happen. Yes, we did. With God's help, we made it happen. So Whole Foods was always on the vision board. And back then, before Whole Foods was acquired by Amazon, each store had a certain amount of discretionary power to work with local brands. And so knowing that, I started going to my local Whole Foods. I was already a Whole Foods fan anyway. I loved the environment. I loved the fact that I could discover different natural foods and products. So I was already sold on the brand. And I went in, looked at the shelves and got a chance to talk to the whole body buyer, told them I was local and just happened to have a few samples in my purse (laughs) of the product. I told them about the story of how we were sourcing and how I thought there would be a great opportunity for us to expose the Whole Foods customer to something interesting. And just developing that relationship with the store buyer made a way for us to be able to put the product on the shelf. And so I would go from store to store to store, stalking the buyer in the aisle, smiling, not wanting to overwhelm them and whipping out my sample. (laughs) And really that's how we got started. Just relationships and having samples ready was how we became a local brand in the DC area. And then growing from there to becoming a regional brand. And then the next step was going national, which took a little longer, but we were able to accomplish that. So did you become a national brand before acquisition by Amazon or was that after? Going national happened for us about two years ago. So that's becoming a global Whole Foods brand. But while we were regional, that was when Whole Foods was going through the transition with Amazon. And to go regional, you had to have a little bit of traction being a local brand. The store buyers had to show that the product was selling, that you were in the stores doing demos, and it was based on how well they felt they knew you and your brand. I think that's really, really exciting and global. So you're a global whole food brand now. Yeah, but Corinne, you know, global in America means all 50 states. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I did not know <laughs> They don't say national, they say global. That's interesting. Yes, global, yes. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Start Right Here podcast and leave a review. Also, you can sign up for our mailing list at theberoundtable.com. So you will be on the know about all the good things coming. Let's change tax a little bit. So we've talked a little bit about it, but I want to go into this a little bit more. You work alongside your husband in this business. I do. What's that like? It's really good. So in the early days, when people didn't respect shea butter, we were trying to figure out how to make a shea butter cream because we knew that there was opportunities outside of making a shea butter balm or a whipped butter to create a different kind of shea butter product. 
you know how L'Occitane had their cream and it was, I think, 15 or 20% shea butter. We wanted to create something like that and then be able to add other oils and, you know, just to have more flexibility and creams are more stable. They don't melt in the summertime. And so we would go to cosmetic chemist events. Back then, they used to have them in New Jersey. And we would walk the floors and talk to chemists and tell them what we were trying to do. And we would show them the raw butter. And this is kind of how we wanted to develop the formula. And a lot of those chemists told us that shea butter was garbage and that it could not be used. And we were like, what? I mean, this is a vegetable oil. It's a vegetable butter. Why can't it be used? I mean, we already knew that it could be used. So this was back in the day. What we felt was that there was a cultural lack of competence that they were unwilling to admit to. And so my husband was like, I'm going to become a cosmetic chemist and I'm going to figure out how to formulate with unrefined shea butter. Watch me. And so every night in the kitchen, this man was reading and he was putting together things. And then after that, he connected with a European ingredient supplier that he was buying the emulsifiers from. And then they brought him to their labs and he worked with their labs to develop a lot of our base formulas. And really, that's how we started making our own products ourselves. And he became my key cosmetic chemist. Oh, that's amazing. First of all, he's like, watch me. I love that. Watch me. Watch me. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And Corinne, can I tell you what a blessing that has been to our business? It's been a blessing because we can make our own formulas. We're not beholden to a large cosmetic company that would say you have to buy 10,000 units when you're still trying to figure out how to sell 100, right? <laughs> so we were able to start making really small batches, being nimble enough to change if something wasn't working. And now, because of that expertise, we are positioned to even make products for other people who are starting small or who are established. And they're like, look, I'm good at marketing. I'm good at selling. Can I please find someone who can make me a good lotion? And we're like, oh, yeah, we can help you. So it's really been a blessing working with my husband and him becoming our cosmetic chemist. Before we talk about working with other people, I want to talk about your decision to leave your full-time job and do this full-time, because that was a big leap. It was huge. Corinne, it was huge. And I don't want to give anybody the impression that it's a sexy and cool thing to do. We are not wealthy. We were not wealthy even at the point that I left my job. We are immigrants. We didn't have parents or grandparents who bestowed upon us any kind of inheritance. You know how most people have some stash Trust fund kids. You were not trust fund kids. We were not trust fund kids. We didn't have generational wealth. I think that's what it is. Because sometimes when you say trust fund, people are thinking of extremely wealthy. But I think your average non-Black American has some level of generational wealth that has been passed to them so that they can have a little bit of cushion. There's the grandma's house, you know, where grandma died and left you 50, 25, you know, whatever. People have stuff like that, Corinne, you know. We didn't have that. So I decided to leave my job for a couple of reasons. One was I was in my mid-40s and I think I didn't know it then, but I was going through a bit of a midlife crisis. 
And if I may be extremely transparent, I think it was going into menopause and evaluating my life and sitting in a meeting where people were arguing about a technical document. I was in this meeting a few months prior to that meeting. I had just come from Mali, where I had been in the field with the women, talking, creative ideas at a Global Share Alliance function, just kind of being in that environment that I loved so much. And so fast forward to this day in the meeting that people are arguing about if it should be it with an apostrophe S or not and going off and losing their minds. And I sat here and I'm like, I'm going to lose my mind if I have to sit through another meeting. And if this is going to be my life to retirement, I'm in big trouble. So I was going through my middle-aged crisis, hot flashes and (laughs) all that and evaluating my life. The second thing that was happening was that we were already in enough whole foods and natural stores that I was literally not sleeping in terms of us trying to put together the orders. And all this time we were doing this at home, our basement, our garage was already taken over. My job was in Washington, D.C., and I lived in Ellicott City, which technically is a 45-minute drive, but you know how it is with the D.C. traffic. It could easily be an hour and a half or two hours each way. And obviously, back in the day, work from home was not really an option. I had two young kids. My older son had special needs, needed special care. My younger son, he was great, but he had all these eczema issues. So I had a lot going on. I decided that if I didn't do it now, I was never going to do it. And that the business was going to be a hobby because I just physically didn't think I had the bandwidth to continue to do everything. And so I spoke to my husband. And he reluctantly said, okay, it's not going to be pretty. We are truly a two-income family. (laughs) (laughs) But let's do this. And that is what I did. And what I did was I poured myself into the business. I knew I didn't have a backup plan. And we had to make this work. And yes, it wasn't easy. And yes, there were a lot of scary times. I don't have any regrets, but that's because I counted the cost and I decided that there would be no plan B. And so I had to make it work. And yes, we drew out of our 401k (laughs) to keep things going. Right. But that's real talk. That's real talk. People who are considering entrepreneurship need to hear these kinds of stories because it's not always pretty and there's sacrifices that need to be made and you can't do everything forever. You can't hold down a job and grow your business. It doesn't always all work like that. We hear the pretty stories. We hear quote unquote success stories, but the road to success is ugly. It really is. And it really takes a lot of humility because you're constantly being fed the idea that if you're successful, you need to show up a certain way. And I have to say that while we were achieving some level of success, like, oh yes, now we're in all the local Whole Foods and now we're regional and now this is happening and you know we're sharing our successes on social media. We still were not profitable. I still could not drive a nice car. So am I going to pretend and go buy a Mercedes or an SUV so I look successful when I know that we are in a point that every little penny we're making is going into the business. And when you're in a CPG business, when you are a manufacturer, 
when you're selling to distributors and you have to sell and wait 30, 45 days for them to pay you and you have all this debt going on, you have to be really honest about your road to success, that it's not glamorous. And if you're caught up in the idea that you always have to appear successful, you will shoot yourself in the foot. You have to be comfortable with the fact that, yes, we don't necessarily have this. I mean, it's not like you're broadcasting it, but you're realistic. The kids are like, oh, mommy, can we do this and that or whatever? You're like, well, not now. Daddy and I can't afford it because we're feeding the third child, which is Shea Radiant. Right. <laughs> but there's a roof over your head and you're eating and that's the situation. So, yeah, that's what it looks like. And I appreciate that because that's very, very real. Let's talk about the Shea Radiant line. How many SKUs do you have? We have 32 SKUs and we are working on another nine SKUs for a skincare line that should be coming to you sometime this fall. That is fantastic. You heard it here first. Skincare is coming. So let's break down the 32 SKUs. I mean, not every 32, but categories for people who are unfamiliar with the line. I will start off with the very basic shea butter product. One of the things my husband and I wanted to do was to make sure we were putting as much shea butter in everything so that we would have to buy more shea butter from the community. So Using an abundance of shea butter was part of our business model because we knew that as we grew, it would mean that we would be able to do more business in the supply chain. So we have a simple raw shea butter product that comes in three flavors, unscented, apricot oil, and orange and cloves. And it's a raw shea butter product that people love because we didn't just put like hunks of shea butter in a tub. We actually put it in a food processor and churned it so that it's just easier to work with. Because from doing our research in the farmer's market, people would stop by the table and be like, you know, I know shea butter is good. And my auntie brought me a hunk, but it's sitting under my bathroom sink. I'm like, why aren't you using it? Because it's so hard and I don't want to take it down to the microwave. So we kind of circumvented that problem by creating a raw shea product that was easy to apply. So we also have the whipped shea butter, which is for everyone with dry skin or kids with eczema, because we whipped the butter, added aromatic cocoa butter, rice bran oil, and then we shoved some colloidal oats in it, because for my kid's skin, oat was a great soother for the eczema. So that comes in three skews. And then we have a body wash, which is one of our favorite products. The base is made with African black soap and we also included some colloidal oats in that so that when you take a shower, if you take a bath with it, it doesn't strip your skin. And I always tell people the soap you use matters in terms of your skin's health. We have the African black soap bars that are made for us by a woman-owned business in Accra. So it's a custom-made, authentic African black soap with the whole cocoa pods, plantain skin, shea butter, and coconut oil. So that's another one of my favorites. And then we have a brightening body lotion, which has the vitamin C. It has alpha arbutin. Because one of the things I hear and I also see in my own skin on my body is that hyperpigmentation is a huge problem that is faced by women of color. And so we created that lotion to address issues of hyperpigmentation. And I'll land on the last one, which is the antioxidant 
body cream that is infused with baobab and marine algae. And that's for mature skin like mine <laughs> that needs great hydration, that needs the antioxidant, that needs the algae that's going to pull in hydration. And that is actually one of my favorite products. I use that along with the whipped butter to keep my skin looking great. I love the whipped butter. The body cream is fabulous. And the shower gel is amazing. Those are my memorable products from Shea Radiance. Let's talk about the production capabilities that you have for others. How do you work with other companies who are interested in white labeling product? Corinne, I've been through a couple of iterations of how we chosen to work with people. And at first, when I opened that up, there was a lot of inquiries. And one of the things I found was that I didn't really have the bandwidth to bring on a lot of customers because they wanted a lot of different things. They wanted custom formulations or they wanted to tweak this, but they wanted to order it in such small numbers that it was costing us more to service the customers. And so where we landed was that we were going to work with customers who already had an existing business and that were already selling into the market and that any one of our products that we currently make with some minor adjustments, maybe to the scent or maybe to one oil, we would be able to make it in one large batch for them. And then we would fill it, we would do their labeling and get it out the door to them. So we work by batch size, which would also depend on the size of their containers and everything else. So we'll price the order by the filling, by the labeling and everything that it takes to get it out the door. So we found that our sweet spot is really with brands that already have some traction, that know what they want. Maybe they've had someone else filling it for them before and they've discovered us, they've sampled our products, they know what they like, and then we would do that for them. That makes a lot of sense because if you're just starting out, then you're going to want to order like 50 or 100 or something very, very small, which is difficult. I mean, large manufacturers, they want you to order 5,000, 10,000, whatever. So in order to make it efficient for your business model and effective for the client, I think that's a good way to approach contract manufacturing for now for you. So how have your production facilities and approach, you've been in business over 14 years now. How has that shifted for you guys from the first playing in the kitchen to now? I would say the production has shifted because obviously we're in a warehouse space now and we have, quote unquote, a kitchen lab behind this wall where we do all our production. It's still considered small batch compared to a lot of really large manufacturers. And we kind of like that about how we do our production. I mean, one of the things I want to share is that we produce in our home for quite a while. We retrofitted the garage. The basement was completely taken over by the business. And the reason I want to share that is because there might be people listening to this podcast who think that, oh, they have to rush out, get a space, start paying rent, and all the other overhead that they are going to incur as a result of having a space like this, I think that you can build your business to a decent size using the space you have, like stay in the space you have as long as you can so that when you do move, it's because you can afford it and you have outgrown where you are. So where we are right now, I even think we've outgrown it 
And once the lease is up in another two and a half years, we're going to probably have to double the space that we're in. But I want to encourage people, don't despise the days of small beginnings. Work with what you got. Work with what you got and work it till it stops working and then step out. Yeah, I love that. It's like ride it till the wheels fall off, basically. I mean, unless, of course, you have huge investors who are willing to just take you from zero to a million in six months, then just completely disregard everything I said. But even then... With huge investors, they don't want to see you spending your money on space. Space is not part of the profit (laughs) projection. (laughs) Yeah. What's the hardest thing you've encountered building Shea Radiance? There's so many hard things. I would say one of the hardest things is knowing when to say no to opportunities. Yeah, let me rephrase that. One of the hardest things is knowing when to say no to opportunities that look good. And we had an experience not too long after I left my job and I started working full-time in the business where our branding and everything we were doing was so on point. We were going to all the right events and a big box store noticed us and wanted to bring us in. And we thought that was the answer to our prayer, right? Like, oh, finally, we're going to go into all these stores and all our money issues will be over because we're going to be selling to this huge chain. It turned out that we were very naive and that, in fact, when opportunities like this present themselves, you can't bootstrap your way through it. You actually need to be talking to people who can invest in your business. But we didn't recognize that we didn't even understand our cash flow fully because obviously we're not from the CPG world. And so the opportunity came. We got this really nice purchase order. We were able to fill it. It was stressful, but we filled it. And then we got into the store. It wasn't properly stocked. We had a big launch party letting people know that we were in this great store. You know, it was Target. And everybody in our community knew that Share Radiance has launched in Target. They have really crushed it. They've done it. And... People went to the store, they couldn't find the product. I would go into the store, it wouldn't be properly stocked. And it's a convergence of a lot of things. These things are not unusual. If you were a bigger company, you would have been able to manage it better. You would have had enough cushion for the transition of when you launch and when things are really cooking. We didn't plan for all these contingencies that the launch wouldn't be completely successful. And we also didn't plan for how much we would have to invest in promotion and marketing and sales and just all that stuff. So after about nine to 12 months, we were failing. Every time they ran a sale, I was like, oh, my God, I'll clutch my pearls because I knew we would have to pay back the distributor for running that sale. So let's just say one of the hardest things was admitting that it wasn't working and having to pull out. And seeing the devastation it had created in our business because we had actually neglected a lot of our smaller accounts to focus on that. And the hardest thing was deciding that we were not going to quit, but we were literally going to start over again. And what does starting over again mean? It was knowing that you'd lost all this money. And that all the capacity you had built, thinking that there would be orders and more orders, that that was gone. It involved moving out of the space where we were producing and moving the business back into the house. 
And it involved me going out three to four times a week to win back the accounts we had lost. And for some reason, during the time of, okay, we're not going to quit, but we're going to start again. I was so ashamed that we had failed that people would invite us to come talk about business. And I'm like, trust me, you don't want to hear from me. I am the woman who has just been booted out of Target. I have nothing of value to offer you. But people would still invite and I would just kind of share of myself and talk about what we were doing. And people still wanted to hear. So I was still showing up, even though I didn't feel qualified to speak. And for some reason, people were still blessed by what I had to say. So I guess, Corinne, the hardest thing was to keep showing up as we were rebuilding the business. And here we are. Here you are. But you are not the only brand. I mean, was it Sharon Tudor who was interviewed earlier this year who talked about the impact of post-George Floyd, how retailers got all of these Black-owned brands into their stores who were unprepared for the experience and failed. And I just saw a post, I want to say it was from People of Color Nails, it was an Instagram post where there was a picture of all the returns that came from a big box retailer. You know, when your goal is to be in big box retail, no one's pulling you to the side to say, this is the payment cycle. This is what happens when they return the product. All of the things that could go left, you need to know the whole picture before you say it's the dream. So for me and for people listening to this, you being so candid about that experience is a blessing so that maybe they will think differently and ask more questions about going into a retailer and saying, you know what, we're not ready yet. Maybe that's the answer. Yes. And I also want to push a little on being an advocate, not for the retailers, but on behalf of black owned brands wanting to get into retail. I feel that after George Floyd, and with the pledge a lot of retailers were making, because actually when they take inventory of how many businesses of color are represented on the shelf, it is woefully less than what it should be. I mean, we're 12% of the population. When it comes to beauty spending, we are 11% of the dollars that make up the spend in the beauty space. Black people are 11 point something percent. So there truly needs to be representation on the shelf. And what I think retailers who are acting in good faith need to do is that when they bring in a brand to make sure it's properly merchandised, because you know what? The data also shows that when we know it's a brand by a woman or a woman of color or a black person, that we will go check it out and support that brand. I know that I do. And so it's not enough for them to just say, we want to diverse our offering and then throw you on the shelf put you on the bottom, not put any signage to show who you are. And you're competing with brands that are fully funded by the multi-millions. And then you wonder why you fail. It's not because you're a failure. It's because being in retail takes so much. And unless the retailer is willing to kind of invest in elevating the brand, you're going to struggle. And so I want to give a shout out to two retailers in addition to Whole Foods. And I know that Whole Foods can do more and I know they will do more for businesses of color, but I will say Wegmans. It's in the Northeast portion of the United States. I love Wegmans. 
yet Black History Month, Women History Month, they put us front and center and they saw our numbers go up. And when you get that spike, when they feature you, it's like even when they put you back on the shelf, because people have had a chance to try your brand, your numbers continue up because people have tried. And that's because they gave room and space. So I'm going to have to write more on LinkedIn and put that information out there based on my experience, my failure that don't just bring in black brands and hope they survive and then come back and say, oh, you know what? They're not doing well. People don't know they're there and you have the power to merchandise them and display them and be proud of them and show them off so that people of color know they're there. White customers who want to support black business know that they are there and that they are successful. I think retailers need to be vested in our success too. That's my two cents worth. I love it. I love it. Was there another retailer you wanted to shout out? Giant Food. Excellent. Yeah. And all of them are coming to this really after the situation that happened during the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd. They realized that there's no equity there, but equity and making things better is not just her functionary, okay, we brought in 20 black brands and, you know, they just couldn't do it. Why couldn't they make it? If you have programs where you can pre-finance, I have so many ideas for them. Pre-finance the purchase order. Like when you order, if it's 5,000 or 50,000, pay a little bit upfront so that they can get what they need to get it to your store. There's so many creative ways retailers can help people of color be on their shelves and be successful. I think this is so valuable and not talked about enough. So yeah, please do <laughs> put this on LinkedIn too. I want people to get some additional tips from you in terms of doing work that's purpose-driven. Can you offer some tips on finding your purpose and working it? Yeah. So Corinne, one of the things you brought out was when I was talking about my origin story, you pointed out and I was like, oh, that's amazing. She's so right that my desire to travel the world, I studied international business, ended up in IT, but I still ended up traveling the world doing this business. So that spark is planted in all of us in terms of what our passion is. And we have to nurture it. And it evolves over time. I am at a season in my life where if I were to distill down what my purpose is, is I want to see women win. I just get a special joy out of seeing women do well because I know what it means. So when I was traveling to the various communities and sitting, talking to the women, I would literally see myself in them. and. I was fortunate to be born to the parents that I have, and I've had all the life experiences. But I'm like, what keeps me from being a woman in this community who has to carry 100 pounds of nuts on her head and walk all these miles? I didn't do anything special not to be in her shoes. And so when I look at women's lives, I'm like, what can I do in my own small way to ease her burden? And I know that... For me, empowering women or supporting women is not giving free stuff. You know, I see a lot of brands say, oh, buy one shoe and we'll donate one shoe to a child in Africa, a woman in Africa. As an African woman, I am insulted when people do things like that. Because what these women say they really want 
is they want to be able to make more money to support their families. And what does that look like? It looks like access, having a buyer who will buy at a negotiated price and who will buy consistently. So that's what I try to do. To some extent, we've been successful. To some extent, we haven't been very successful. But that is my passion. That is my purpose. And even here in the States, I love working or talking to other women who are in my field, be they competitors or not. Because I feel like if I'm doing well and I can share what I know, they can do well. And then there's more of us doing well. And there's so much room to meet different women's needs. And people are going to buy from Funlayo because they like Funlayo. <laughs> and they're going to buy from Jasmine because they like Jasmine. So there's so much room. And at the end of the day, the customer needs a variety of solutions for all their problems. And not one Black-owned business can meet all those needs. So I love to see women win. That's my mission. Phew, that was so much right there. You have blessed us just by telling the truth today. <laughs> One of the reasons I started this podcast is because I wanted people to understand what people's paths look like so that they don't walk in looking for overnight success, but understand how people overcome because we have to overcome obstacles in order to find success. We have to admit we don't know everything. Like there are things that we have to do that stretch us. Yeah. Ask for help. Ooh, ask for help. Yes, yes, yes. Humble yourself and just ask. Right. And understand what success looks like because success is not always money. That is part of this conversation because success is not always money because you can have all the money in the world and not be successful. Absolutely. So it's got to be all of that. I mean, I feel like this is just such a rich, rich, rich conversation that I'm so very grateful for. So Fumi, thank you so much. Corinne, thank you for having me. Great questions. And you were also pinpointing things I missed along the line. You said, let's put a pin in it. You know, you studied international business, but you ended up not doing it. But really, when I look about it, I am doing it. Oh, absolutely doing it. When you said that, I was like, oh my God, she's doing that. I'm doing it. I'm doing the thing. <laughs> and it's very, very interesting. So I'll give you a joke. So when I was in high school, one of my friends, I'm going to say his name. He's not going to listen to this podcast anyway. Bully Stokes used to come up to me and go, he's called me Scoop Newsworthy. And I, this is from probably the Bill Cosby Variety Hour show that he paid his character. It was like a reporter. And I was never a communications major or anything like that. I mean, I ended up writing kind of like through the back door. So it's almost like people see things in you early and the same with you that manifest in your life in different ways. I'm living into the scoop newsworthy. <laughs> there you go. And you ask such good questions. It's like you just kind of dig in deep and bring out the stuff. And I would say one of the dangers we don't want to run into as entrepreneurs is shortcutting the process. Because if you go through the process of building your business, the challenges and victories of it all, you actually find yourself. And then there's a level of confidence that what I'm doing is authentic. I don't have to copy anyone. I can learn from people but I don't have to be like anyone else. I don't have to rush to market because X, Y, Z is doing this. Then I must do that. I mean, I can learn from what X, Y, Z is doing, but being able to show up authentically and be yourself, that's part of the value we bring to the market. I think that's also important for entrepreneurs to know, like just keep being yourself. 
Because as you said, people want to know you and buy from you. That's what it is. They connect with a brand through the people who run the brand. That's our show for today. Follow Start Right Here on Instagram at start underscore right underscore here underscore podcast. And check out the Last Word newsletter for my latest musings on beauty and inclusion.